The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with another innovator who we've been featuring with a series on our site for Hospice Month. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Pamela D. Wilson, author of The Caregiving Trap, Solution for Life's Unexpected Changes. Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for making the time and for providing the three excerpts of your book that we featured on our site for Hospice Month. Before we start our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background? Absolutely. It kind of ties in with your subject of National Hospice Month. I call my story, Death Changes Everything. I got into the business that I do kind of in a roundabout way. Um, When I was 17, I had a sister that was killed in a car accident. And then when I was in my 30s, my parents got ill. My mom died when I was 35. My dad died when I was 38. My oldest brother died six months later. And I was working in consumer products and just did a total career change to caring for the elderly, which was something that I had on my list to do when I was 17, but I delayed a few years. And so today, basically what I do is I help families navigate healthcare and aging, and that's kind of how my book, The Caregiving Trap, came about. Great, and perfect segue. Could you take the next couple minutes and provide our audience with a 10,000-foot overview of The Caregiving Trap? Yes. Uh, The title's controversial. Some people hate it, some people love it, but it actually came from my client. So Elderly clients will come to me and they'll say, you know, I feel so trapped in my life. I have to take pills. I can't leave my house. I have all these medical conditions. The caregivers say the same thing. I feel trapped. I have to go take care of my parents tonight or this weekend or I'm a 24-7 caregiver. So the 10,000-foot version is we have this experience that most of us are going to have in life, either being a caregiver or being a care recipient, and we feel trapped and we don't know what to do. And so the book is advice about how to navigate through both of those issues. Right. And many, many aspects of the issue. It's a great book. Lots of chapters on many different points of which there's these trouble spots. One of the ones we featured was giving up your car keys, which is something I've recently gone through with my mother. And it's been really hard for her to come to terms with that and for the family because it's one, her giving up her independence and two, us worrying for her safety. So we're going to learn more about all the different chapters in the book as we go along here. Pamela, let's start with this. How does your personal life experience with caregiving benefit the individuals you support today? You know, my personal life lended a lot to, to both my career and to the book. You know, I was the youngest of six kids. I did a lot of things for my parents, as as did my other brothers and sisters. But a lot of times it's the youngest kid that has most of the responsibility, mostly because we're usually not married yet. And we have a lot of free time, and so we can do that. And that played a lot into caring for my parents and even my desire to get into this business. 
What are some of the benefits of an advocate to a situation of care? An advocate can be a huge benefit. And I, I kind of liken this to me trying to get my car fixed. You know, I am not a mechanic. I take my car to the mechanic. I ask the mechanic, you know, does it need to be fixed? What needs to be done? I can't judge whether what he's telling me is accurate or not, or should I have those repairs or should I not? Should I trust this mechanic person? And so healthcare is the same. Doctors in the healthcare profession don't speak the language of consumers. So if a doctor's giving advice to somebody, most consumers don't know what questions to ask, if they should follow the advice of the doctor. And so that's the role of an advocate. The advocates ask questions that many families are afraid to ask. And advocates who have a long, you know, number of years of experience learn over time what questions really should be asked in order to avoid mistakes or errors in care and in care planning. And so advocates can really save people a lot of time. They can save money and they can save a lot of grief over, oh my gosh, we should have done this and we didn't do the right thing at the right time. And so an advocate is definitely beneficial. Absolutely. The other thing an advocate can do is give you confidence on whether your questions are stupid or not. Well, there's no stupid questions. You know, it, I kind of liken it. I don't know if you remember Columbo off the TV show from years ago. It's kind of when you're not afraid to ask those stupid questions that you really get the best answers. So there's no no stupid questions. Right. But sometimes especially if there were an advocate, you can ask a question and that will be, you'll have your resolution. Of course, it's okay to yes. do X, Y, or Z. And other times your advocate will give you the confidence, oh, that's perfectly okay to ask the doctor that, even though it might seem, you know, too personal or too invasive of a question or invade the person being cared for's privacy or that sort of thing. Why is planning important in situations of care? Planning is important to avoid crisis. So a lot of clients will come to us at the time of an emergency. So Friday afternoon is a great time for me to get phone calls saying, oh my gosh, the skilled nursing community is discharging my parent and they can't go home. Who's going to take care of them? So the planning part of that is if you talk about what kind of care you want. And if something happens, what do we do? Is there money to pay for caregivers? Do I want to live in assisted living? Would I live in a nursing home? Who's going to take care of me? If you talk about those things before a disaster happens, then when the disaster happens, you already have a plan in place. Whereas if you don't and you get this three o'clock Friday call saying, oh, you know, your parents going to be ready in an hour, come pick them up. You have no idea what to do because you didn't talk about it and you didn't plan. So planning prevents these crises that happen, and they also allow people to be more logical about what they want for care. I was talking to some friends last week, and, and it was as simple as, okay, when you need care, what do you want? And one of them said, I don't want oatmeal every morning. Well, it's those simple little things about our daily life that's important when we need care, and it's important to have it written down. I'm a project manager by trade, so I'm big on planning. This next question is really important, I think, and important to me especially. How might family members identify normal memory loss associated with aging versus dementia or Alzheimer's? 
The way that it can be identified is, and I'll use myself as an example. I rush out of the house in the morning, but I get to the door and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot this. Normally people who have memory loss, in the early stages, they do realize that they're forgetful. But as it goes on, they don't. And so what'll happen is you'll notice in your parents' house, they'll be writing themselves notes about everything. So sticky notes, notes in notebooks, notes about I should remember to do this. I have to call this person. So very different from a project list or a project manager. It's all these little sticky notes reminding me to do things. And you'll find them everywhere. You'll find them on the kitchen counter. You'll find them in a cabinet. And the other thing is the beginnings of disorganization. So there's part of the brain that does this function called executive function. It reminds us to call somebody. It reminds us to go to an appointment. It reminds us to pay bills. People who start to lose executive function will start to have piles all over the house. So piles of bills, piles of paperwork that they think they're going to get to, but they never get to. And so what eventually happens is bills might become late or they get unpaid or the electricity gets turned off because somebody forgot to do that. Or I was supposed to meet my son for dinner and oh my gosh, I forgot to show up. Or I leave the house driving and I get lost and I can't find my way back home. So it's all these very subtle things that happen over time. And the challenge is family members who are close to parents sometimes miss these things. They just think, oh, that's my parent, you know, that's normal aging. But if you have a sibling who lives somewhere far away and they come home and they haven't seen the parents in a while, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, mom or dad have really gone downhill because they're not remembering these things. So it's just noticing those little things at the beginning. You know, your parent wears the same shirt five days a week and there's food spilled all down the front. They forget to bathe. They forget to do hygiene tasks. It's all the little things that we take for granted that start to fade in somebody who has memory loss. Right. We call that normal memory loss in our house a CRS for can't remember stuff. <laughs> That's the uh, G version of that one. Yes, yes, I, I know the other version. <laughs> Conversations about care are often difficult. How do you suggest an adult child open a conversation about care with a parent? I always look to myself on that one. So the biggest thing not to do is to start by telling a parent that they're failing or they're forgetting to do something. It's better to express concern about yourself. So a couple of examples would be, hey, mom or dad, we figured that we need to start planning for our aging, so we got our powers of attorney done. We're talking about care planning. What do you think about that? So it's kind of starting with an opener about yourself and then posing the question to them. Or you could say, hey, you know, I've noticed that this task, whatever it is, you know, the yard work, the house cleaning, it's, it seems to be getting a little bit difficult for you. Can I help? Is there anything that we can do? So it's more about offering help and maybe talking about your own planning to ease that conversation. Because if you start with a parent's faults, they're going to just shut down and not want to talk about it, which is very common. None of us want to be told what to do. And neither do our parents, especially if they see us as the 16-year-old kid who used to get in trouble all the time and doesn't know anything. Very sage advice. What suggestions do you have for adult children who recognize a parent would benefit from care when the parent refuses? I call them conversation starters also. So 
let's just pick an example of a parent maybe who has lost 20 pounds and they're not cooking anymore and they're not doing any of that kind of stuff. It could be something like, hey, mom or dad, I've noticed that, you know, you're losing weight. Is there anything that I can do to help with that? Or is it because you're not feeling good? Can I bring over some meals? Might it be a good idea to have somebody cook? And the parent just might say, oh, you know, I'm, I hear this all the time. I'm fine. I don't need any help. So it's kind of the reapproach. You talk about it one week. They say, hey, I don't need any help. You come back the next week and maybe you bring a meal. And after the meal, you say, hey, wasn't that a really nice thing? We got to enjoy a meal together. And might that be something that you'd enjoy every week? But you don't necessarily always offer to be the person who's bringing that meal. And so you say, well, what if we had somebody to cook one day a week? So it's just these little inroads into picking a subject that you see as a concern and trying to offer solutions over time. And you may have to come back every week for six weeks or 12 weeks until you finally get them to accept the idea that, you know, this may not be a bad thing. Because with older adults, they don't like change. They don't like strangers coming into their life. They don't like anything that's not their normal routine. And so you kind of have to ease into it over a period of time. What are some common risks in caregiving situations that may be avoidable? So common risks, and I call these preventable events. You know, a lot of people start to have difficulty, and it could be just, you know, walking downstairs to do the laundry, and they have poor balance. Or it could be the whole meal thing, or it could be I'm forgetting to take my medications. So I always talk to families about getting a caregiver in the home before really a lot of help is needed. And if you can do that, then it catches these little things that can happen, like I fall down the stairs and I break a hip because I shouldn't have been going to the basement to do laundry. Or I forgot to take my medications and I got sick. So if you have somebody in there kind of helping with these things early on, and maybe it's just a couple hours one day a week, but you kind of have a prevention mindset of we're going to do this so that these things don't happen. And then as the parent needs more help or the older adult needs more help, you already have a person coming into the household and it's really easy to add another day a week or another couple hours. And so looking at preventable events, just like, you know, taking vitamins every day is a very practical method to avoid a broken hip, having to move out of the house or some other more serious health event. The other thing is just being, you know, proactive and setting expectations. So if you do have caregivers coming into the house, you kind of have to manage them. So what is it you want them to do? Do you want them to do laundry, cook a meal, you know, take you out on an errand? So it's also the fact that you have people coming in and you use them in a wise manner. Not only the fact that they're coming, but it's a good two-way relationship. Pamela, what have we missed? What are some of the other highlights of the book that you share with the readers? You know, some of it is just talking about the really hard subject of money. A lot of parents don't want their kids to know about their finances. And so when you start talking about care, unfortunately, you have to talk about that subject because for better or worse, care costs money. So it's the idea of what is an in-home caregiver cost? You know, that's 20 to 25 an hour. What is assisted living cost? That could be four to 8000 a month. And do I have the money to pay for this? And then there's the long-term planning aspect of Medicaid, which is public assistance. 
when I need help, if my money's going to run out, how do I get on public assistance? So it's a lot of these very practical and unfortunately, sometimes uncomfortable discussions about money and what can money pay for and do I need public assistance, coupled with the fact that, okay, I have kids. Are they going to help me? Can they help me? Is it practical for them to help me? So it's those difficult discussions that are also very important to have, as well as discussions about, you know, end of life and what do I want? It's National Hospice Month. People a lot of times don't get their legal documents done. So it's the medical power of attorney, the financial power of attorney, the living will that says, when this happens to me, I don't want my life sustained. And it's very important to have that in writing because when it happens, if there's nothing in writing, it's hard for other people to know what I would have wanted or, or somebody else would have wanted. It kind of takes the pressure off the families if mom or dad have already made those decisions and it makes it a lot easier. And then there's discussion of, you know, can I trust my kids to make the right decisions? A lot of people are now appointing professionals to serve as power of attorney so that their wishes are followed out. And so those are the important conversations that a lot of times we just don't have. Very, very important. Everybody has different approach to this, I think. It was funny, as I married into my wife's family, they talked openly from the time I met their parents, or specifically my wife's mother, about who was going to get what. You know, what antique and what piece of jewelry. And it made me feel really uncomfortable, I guess. And, you know, in our family, fortunately, I started talking with my mom and dad early on about taking over their finances. And I think you're right, because we started talking early on, when they were clearly able to take care of things for themselves, when both of them went through situations where no one would have been able to pay the bills for six weeks, had I not been doing that for years, it would have been a crisis. So I give all that as, as background. Is there a good age to start having the conversation? Is there a, a, you know, a health situation at which you start? What's a good rule of thumb? You know, in, in my opinion, a good rule of thumb really is, is early. So let's say that you're in your 30s and your parents are in their 50s. Everybody should start talking about it. And even to the point, and I'll give an example, one of my clients, you know, we were talking about life and death. And she said, you know, we used to talk about this all the time because people were born in the house and people died in the house. Now people die in this place called the hospital, and so people don't talk about it. My mom took me to my first funeral when I was five years old. I knew that Grandpa died. The earlier that I think we can expose younger children to the fact of, you know, the circle of life. People die. This stuff happens. So that when you're in your 30s, you can kind of just start talking about this to your parents. You can say, hey, you know, I had a friend who had a parent die. What do you guys want? How do we start talking about this? Because to your point, when you talk about it, when people are healthy, there's not this threat of, oh, my gosh, my kids are going to put me away or this is going to happen. You can talk about it logically so that in your situation, when you needed to start taking over paying the bills, it wasn't a big thing. You already talked about it. And that's the importance of talking about it very early. And, and really, no time is too early, I think, if you socialize it the, in the way that you've talked about there. So, well, Pamela, thank you so much for participating in this series with us on Intrepid Now. We really do appreciate it, and we'll definitely want to keep in touch and get you back 
to talk about caregiving issues from time to time over the next few years. Thank you so much. Before we wrap it up for today, where can people go to contact you and learn more and purchase the caregiving trap? So I have two websites. My company website is thecarenavigator.com. And then my website for caregivers where the book is, it's my name. So it's PamelaDWilson.com. And if you hit forward slash, it will go to the book, The Caregiving Trap. And The Caregiving Trap's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available through all the major booksellers. Great, Pamela. It's such a great pleasure to have you. Thanks for stopping by and imparting your knowledge on us. You're welcome, Joe. Thanks for everything that you do for the community. Oh, thank you so much. That wraps this broadcast on behalf of our guest, Pamela D. Wilson. I'm Joe LaBelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare. Mm-hmm.